Um, I'm an immunologist here in Plymouth, and in common with immunologists elsewhere, we look after patients with allergic disease. We look after the laboratory as well, but that's not for today. And also the immune deficient patients. And actually, angioedema straddles the two aspects of, of the patient groups that we look after, as you will see, as you probably know. So, you are all familiar with the concept of angioedema. I'm pretty confident you all that you would not worry about making a diagnosis of angioedema. But what I want you to get from today, from the next 30 minutes, is to think beyond the diagnosis of angioedema and to actually think, well, why has this patient got angioedema? What's the differential for angioedema? And to appreciate angioedema isn't a diagnosis, it's a description of a symptom. Angioedema is like heart failure. You don't pass exams by writing heart failure. You have to say why the patient's got heart failure, don't you? So angioedema is actually the description of what the patient's suffering from, and there will be an underlying pathology. We always think of allergic disease first. That's right. I mean, it's not wrong to start off thinking, have they got an allergy triggering their angioedema? But if they haven't, and you're going to pick that up from the history, and I'll go through that with you, if they haven't, I want you to think of the wider differential for angioedema, because it will affect how you treat the patients. And if we then can think about the underlying mediators that are actually causing the angioedema, actually what, the, what are the chemical processes going on, it will direct your treatment and you will get your treatment right. So I'm going to start today with four cases. Um, I'd like you to think about the case. Oh, hang on. I'd like you to think about the cases that I'm going to go through today, each one one by one, and then we'll talk through them at the end when we've had a little bit more chat about angioedema. Just to, just to distinguish quickly between angioedema and edema, I didn't talk about this because you all look so clever when I looked across. Um, you know this, but it's worth focusing just because sometimes we do see patients referred to clinic with, with angioedema and they actually turn out to have edema. Remember, angioedema is localised. The, the, the um, fluid has got into the interstitial space, into the tissue, because of a localised release of inflammatory mediators. So the vessels have changed at a particular location in the body. Edema, of course, can either be a back pressure problem or a decrease in oncotic pressure. Edema is going to be dependent and probably symmetrical. Angioedema tends to be localised in funny old places, the lips or the tongue or the hand or just one foot, often asymmetrical. And the time course is different. Angioedema will come on over minutes to hours and settle over one or two days, whereas a dependent edema is going to come on over days. So you know the difference. So here are the cases. You're going to think, what's the likely diagnosis? You, they've, all, they've all got angioedema. So that's the easy <coughs> bit. All right? That's the, no, no marks for that. Consider the underlying pathogenesis. Okay? That's your pass-fail. And then, if you're clever, think about what investigations would help focus you to get that right diagnosis and think about the treatment. I'm not going to ask you to stick your hands up and answer, but just go through them yourself um, as, as we work through. There's only one slide per case. They're all real. The first one's 65. He's a man, and he's had five episodes of swelling in four months. Lips, tongue, lasting about six hours. So if it starts in the small hours of the night, by lunchtime he's better. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's not so long. He's never been breathless with it, never affected his airway. Mostly the mornings, before he gets out of bed, but one evening. And because they're first thing in the morning before he gets out of bed, there's no relations to food, there doesn't seem to be any medication triggers. He takes his medication later on, after, you know, after they've usually kicked off. They've happened at home, they've happened on holiday, there doesn't seem to be a seasonal variation. <coughs> he's got ischemic heart disease, he's got hypertension, and he's on a few drugs. I'm starting with the easy one. 
So you're thinking about what the diagnosis is. If you know that, which you do, you're then thinking about well, what are the mediators involved in that particular process of angioedema and what treatments are you going to recommend for this gentleman, acutely and also long term. Okay, next one. So we'll just crack through them. 76-year-old woman. She had an episode of facial swelling and shortness of breath after eating scrambled duck egg, which she'd had um, one morning as a special treat because she was off to her um, grandson's christening. So they hopped in the car and drove around the North Circular and 20 minutes into the car journey. In fact, she'd been feeling a bit rubbish um, when she got in the car, but it was a big occasion, so she didn't want to cause any trouble to the family. 25 minutes around the North Circular, they had to call the ambulance. She collapsed. She was hypotensive. She had angioedema. She had an urticarial rash. She was in a dreadful state, and they put her back together at the Royal Free, and then she subsequently came up to see me in clinic. So she's had, she's had no previous allergies. She's on no regular medication, but since that particular episode, she thought best to avoid eggs. So again, you know what's going on. So think about the diagnosis for this lady. Think about the mediators that are involved in triggering this particular type of reaction, because they're very different from the previous one. And then think about what investigations and treatment you might do. Okay, next one's 23. She's one of my patients. She comes to, oh, I've left a and &E, I'm sorry, I thought I'd change them all to ED. She comes to the emergency department with lip swelling and some tightening in her throat. And she's got a letter, one of those really scrappy letters that's all raggedy around the edge. And it says, she suffers from hereditary angioedema. Magnificent, you've got the answer. But the bottom half of the letter's ripped off where it's been folded up. So there's no information about treatment or anything. And her medication is uh, oral contraceptive tranexamic acid. So again, I'm hoping you've got the diagnosis for this one. What are the mediators? What's pushing this woman to have angioedema? What are the actual processes going on? And what treatment are you going to give her? And this is acutely because she's in the emergency department and she's got throat tightening and she's looking a bit shabby. So I need, you need to know what to do acutely for this particular woman. Okay, next one. 54. Woman, eight episodes of rash on her face, a lumpy, itchy, hivy, wheelie, urticarially rash. And she's got pictures of it on her phone to show you, and it looks ever so urticarial. Two months it's been going on for, lips are swollen as well, a bit of tongue swelling, lasting for six to eight hours again each time, no breathlessness at all. Early mornings, like the other gentleman, but also in the evenings. Again, no food triggers, no relationship to food, no relationship to drugs. She hasn't changed anything. She's using the same washing powder, all that jazz. She's thought about it all at home. She's, she's working. She happens at work as well. Um, her only medications are thyroxine, and she's been taking some Pyroton, which she hates, chlorpheniramine, I should say, because it makes her really drowsy. Um, it does seem to help a little bit, though. Um, and no known allergies. So for this lady, what's the diagnosis from the history? I think you can probably get it from the history. What are the mediators involved? What do you think they might be? It's more difficult, this. Um, and what treatments are you going to recommend um, for the long term and acutely? So if you've got all those and you're sorted, we can all go and have coffee because I don't need to talk anymore. Or I can carry on, which I'm going to, but I, I won't be upset if you leave. So angioedema, we've, oh, hello. We've said is a, a loss of vascular integrity at a local site as a response to the inflammatory process triggering off. And there are lots of mechanisms, but basically we tend to now divide them into two broad categories because that's how we can direct our treatment. And we think about the mast cell mediated angioedemas and we think about the bradykinin 
kinin complement pathway angiodemas. And clinically, they are quite different, and you can distinguish from those very short histories. Mast cell mediators, you're thinking about histamine tryptase, prostaglandin, heparin, and so on, being released acutely from mast cells. And the, the kinin pathways, we've got bradykinin as our main mediator, directing our inflammatory process, causing the um, angiodematous process, but also the complement um, factors C3A and C5A will, will have a role as well. So there's our two groups, mast cells and then the kinin pathway. So let's do the easy one first, or the one you're more familiar with. Mast cell release. There's a whole load of ways we can make mast cells give up their mediators. And the one we think of first, and as we said at the beginning quite rightly, is the allergic reaction, the IgE-mediated allergic reaction. I'm not going to go into huge detail of this because you'll get bored of me, but basically you remember that the individual becomes sensitized to a particular innocuous thing, like, for example, duck egg or house dust mite or timothy grass, producing IgE antibodies specific to that thing. The IgE antibodies circulate, they attach onto the mast cell, and on re-exposure, triggering the specific receptors of those IgE antibodies attached onto the mast cell will cause mediator release from the mast cell. The critical thing in the IgE reactions is that is an immediate process. So if you had a prawn sandwich last night and you get urticarian angioedema this morning, it will not be the prawn sandwich that caused it. There will be another mechanism because that IgE-mediated mechanism is immediate. And you'll always get that from a history. Pretty much with a food allergy, it will be within the hour. I tend to take a history back four hours because I'm an anxious kind of person. But really, you're pretty safe within the hour. If they haven't, if they haven't had a particular food or drug or sting or contact trigger, it's not going to be IgE mediated if it's been more than an hour. So that's IgE. Yep, that's your, in a severe setting, that's your anaphylaxis. And you know with all of these reactions, if it's mast cell release, of mediators, you know exactly what the clinical situation is going to be. There will be angioedema, but there will also almost invariably or often be urticaria. We might see some bronchospasm. We might see some GI symptoms as well. But the angioedema tends to be associated with urticaria when we've got big histamine release going on. The other thing that drugs can do to mast cells is a second one, which is a direct activation of mast cell without the involvement <coughs> of IgE. And that's what happens in our contrast reactions. That's what happens with some opiates, uh, and, other, and other drugs can do it, that the mast cells are directly activated, there's no intermediary, there's no IgE, and the action of that radiocontrast mediator on the, on the mast cell causes immediate degranulation and release of those exact same mediators. The reaction looks exactly the same as our type 1 allergic reaction. We sometimes call it anaf... Ana I, can't, I can't say it today. Um, we, could, we, some, we, we either call it pseudo-allergic... Or we call it a what? Anaphylactoid. Thank you. An anaphylactoid reaction. Tendency to be a sort of pseudo-allergic seems to be the new fashionable way, way of saying it, which is why I can't say anaphylactoid. Um, but it's exactly the same clinically, and your treatment is going to be the same. The only difference is in your investigation. There's no point going looking for IgE if it was never involved in the process. Okay. The next one, the non-steroidals being, being very side-effect-y kind of drugs, they do have a direct effect on that inflammatory mediator pathway within the mast cells. If you get an accumulation of those mediators, the leukotrienes, the pro-inflammatory drugs, the pro-inflammatory mediators, you can get what looks exactly like an allergic reaction as a result of the non-steroidals effect, but actually isn't necessarily IgE-mediated. 
Again, don't go looking for IgE, you're not going to find it. We can have a physical effect on mast cells, causing them to release their mediator. Pressure, heat, water can actually directly affect mast cells. So I see patients in clinic who, who perhaps, when they go in the shower, have massive widespread urticarian angioedema. Every time they go in the shower, every time they go swimming, that will be an aquagenic urticarian angioedema. Other people will describe, and you'll have seen people like this, they carry heavy shopping bags, they get swellings and rashes on their hands, or where they carry the heavy rucksack, they get it over their shoulders. That's the pressure induced. The physical urticarias and angiodemas. Direct effect on mast cell through a physical process. And then there's a subgroup of autoimmune patients, and actually a reasonable proportion of the patients we see probably have antibodies against that IgE receptor, which are themselves triggering off the mast cell activation. So an autoimmune process can also cause mast cell degranulation. Okay, so we've got the mechanism for a large number of these processes. I've said already, 90%, if you've got mast cell degranulation causing your angioedema, which is what we're talking about today, most of them, most, but not all, will most of the time be associated with urticaria. And the symptoms generally respond to antihistamines, which is the main mediator triggering the whole process off. Acutely and as a preventative therapy in the patients with the chronic processes. They might need high doses of antihistamines. Cetirizine, fexofenadine, you'll know the names, they're non-sedating antihistamines. Both licensed for once daily use. Actually good safety data for both cetirizine 10 milligrams and fexofenadine 180 up to four times a day. Really very good sound safety data. They'll never be licensed for four a day, but there's good safety data up to those doses. Not in pregnancy please, and watch out for other drug interactions. Don't use, please don't use, Chlorpheniramine, Pyroton, orally, for anything. It's rubbish. It's sedating. Are you allowed to have it? Because you might want to use an antihistamine IV, and it's the only one. But apart from that, and in the really tiny children, I think Cetirizine's licensed down to two now, but apart from that, use, for goodness sake, use a non-sedating antihistamine. Surely, you acute people, it makes it more difficult to assess somebody if they're all dopey on their antihistamines. Surely it's, it's, it's better if somebody's not sleepy when you see them, and it's better for their life not to sedate them. So, little rant. So we use high doses of non-sedating antihistamines for these patients. If that doesn't control their symptoms acutely or chronically, we then add in other things around the edge which have a, a sometimes help, um, although the evidence base is weak and tends to be slightly anecdotal or case series based. We add in Montelukast, we think a leukotriene receptor antagonist might be quite helpful if we're releasing mediators from our cells, sometimes it helps. Sometimes we add in ranitidine, ranitidine actually, to get both the histamine receptors blocked. Tranexamic acid is very good actually for the angiodematous patients because it's an effect on the bradykinin pathway, which I'll talk about, but doesn't have such a good effect if it's a mast cell mediator release process. And then at the end of the line, we want to immunosuppression. So that's where we get to with these chronic urticarian angioedema patients. So what about the second, the second lot here, where we get activation of the kinin and complement pathways causing our angioedema? Just for a bit of happiness and joy, here's the bradykinin pathway. Don't panic. Start in the middle with bradykinin. Just look at bradykinin. Don't look at the rest. Bradykinin acts on the bradykinin receptor. That's nice and easy. We can deal with that. And the bradykinin beast of two receptor causes vasodilation and localized increase in vascular permeability. That's what bradykinin does. Okay. So anything that causes an accumulation of bradykinin may cause angioedema. 
Okay, this fella here, ACE, antitensin converting enzyme, breaks down bradycardin. So if we inhibit our antitensin converting enzyme with a well-known class of drugs that everybody seems to be on, about one in 200 people get angioedema. So you know that, but that's why. Just say so you no know one. So ACE inhibitors cause angioedema through the bradykinin pathway. Now what's critical with this is they don't cause it to anything to do with mast cells or IgE. So it doesn't have to be immediate. In fact, you can be on your ACE inhibitor for yonks, for years, months, ages. And the timing of your angioedema will not relate necessarily to the timing of your tablet. Because it's nothing to do with immediate reactions, it's due to accumulation of bradykinin. So people who say to you, oh, I've been on it for two years, it can't possibly be that. Not necessarily the case. And indeed, when you stop the ACE inhibitor, if you read the literature, it says there's a month sometimes between the symptoms stopping occurring of angioedema and the ACE inhibitor being stopped. Actually, in experience, I think it's probably sometimes a bit longer than that. So it's not an immediate stop drug, stop problem. You stop the drug acutely and they're still getting swelling. It doesn't mean it wasn't the ACE inhibitor. Yeah, it could still be. Or you may be just unmasked another process. And the other thing to look at in this pathway is uh, the immunologist's little friend here, C1 inhibitor, or C1 esterase inhibitor. That inhibits the process which causes buildup of bradykinin. So if you removed your inhibitor, you would get more bradykinin. So if you've got a deficiency or a lack of function of C1 inhibitor, you get an accumulation of bradykinin. And of course, if you've got a patient with a deficiency of C1 inhibitor, and then you give them an ACE inhibitor, you're in all sorts of trouble. And just because I can't really do a talk because I'm an immunologist without one little simple slide about complement, here he is. Um, and the only reason this is here, because it's important in, in the testing, you do need to know this, because C1 inhibitor not only works on the bradykinin pathway, but as its name suggests, also works in the complement pathway. If you have a failure to control the classical bit of the complement pathway, you will use up some of your early mediators of complement activation, which includes the using up of C4. And that's important when we come to testing, because patients with C1 inhibitor deficiency have a low C4, because it's being used up in between and during attacks. It's a really good, really cheap, really easy test if someone's got angioedema. And the other reason this slides up is, of course, C3A and C5A. Some of the media, some of the products of activating the complement system themselves will cause angioedema through increase in vascular permeability. Okay, so that's enough of that. So who are these people who get angioedema due to increase in bradykinin? They're a small subgroup. They're not, the majority will be the mast cell degranulation people. But if we see angioedema and no urticaria, we have to be a little bit suspicious. They might be the unusual mast cell guys, but they might also fall into this group. So, people on ACE inhibitors get it. One. People with C1 inhibitor deficiency, rare, but not unheard of. We've got knocking on 50 patients now in Devon and Cornwall, so they're out there. Um, type 1 hereditary angioedema have a low level of C1 inhibitor enzyme. Type 2 have a lack of function of their C1 inhibitor. And then there's an acquired form, which isn't hereditary. So type 1 and type 2 are hereditary, it's autosomal dominant. Most will have a family history, 20% new mutation, so some don't. But there is another form associated with the, the nasty hematological diagnoses and sometimes with autoimmune <coughs> disease where the patients get an acquired deficiency in C1 inhibitor. So you can present in your 50s and your 60s later on and it's secondary to your lymphoma, for example. And I've put it on the bottom here because if I didn't, someone asked me the question. There is something we call now type 3 hereditary angioedema. We don't understand it, 
Patients get recurrent swelling. It's almost definitely bradykine-mediated because we know which treatments it responds to, but they have normal levels of C1 inhibitor. So if you're going to diagnose C1 inhibitor deficiency, if you're worried about it, the people you're thinking about are those with a... I've got a slide on this. Are those with a, a, lo a long history going back into childhood or perhaps a family history. They're presenting with spontaneous angiodermatous swelling. They may well have a history of abdominal pain. Severe intra-abdominal angioedema presents like an acute abdomen. It looks like a surgical catastrophe. They go to theatre if you're not careful. And you don't want to do that. And, um, and obviously the life-threatening complication is laryngeal edema. And most of my patients with this condition have a first-degree relative who died, many in hospital, because these people don't respond to treatment with adrenaline and antihistamines. It is not histamine-mediated. Okay, it's a bradykine-mediated process due to a lack of the enzyme that controls the pathway. So, while we're on C1 inhibitor, how do we treat it? We give a prophylactic treatment to try and reduce the frequency or severity of the attacks. We give them danazole, androgens, upregulate the C1 inhibitor production, and downregulate some of the other um, processes in the pathway to reduce the amount of bradykinin. Tranexamic acid also has a role to play in prophylaxis. It's not quite so good, but the female patients prefer it because of the side effect profile of the androgens. The acute attacks. You're going to treat them either, well, protect the airway first. A is for angioedema, but just now, can it be for airway? Protect their airways, please. Yeah, do all that stuff. I don't understand that. When you've done that, because they won't die, will they? If their airway is patent, tell me if I'm wrong, I think they'll be okay because we're talking about laryngeal edema. That'll be all right. But you do want to stop the swelling happening. So the, the clever treatment is with C1 inhibitor concentrate. This is a blood product. In this hospital, it comes from the blood bank because it means you can get it acutely. Most hospitals will do that. Occasionally, it has to be got by the pharmacist, which of course puts in quite a significant delay if they're not on site during the night when this is happening. So C1 inhibitor concentrate. It'll be in the blood fridge or in the blood bank. If not, try the pharmacy. The dose for Baronet, which is the one most commonly used, is 20 units per kilogram. It tends to be three vials, because they come in 500s for a 70 kilo, kilogram person. The other treatment, which is newer and more snazzy, is the bradykinin B2 receptor blocker, which is a subcutaneous injection and works within 15 minutes or half an hour. So it works in the time it takes to find the C1 inhibitor, to be quite honest, in my experience, um, to reduce the swelling. 10% of patients need a second dose of, um, it's called Ecataban, the bradykinin blocker. 10% of patients do need a second dose of it. And, and the key thing is, any patient now under the care of an immunologist will have a letter, <laughs> which hopefully isn't torn in half and actually tells you what to do, but also will carry their acute treatment. So about half of my patients now carry Ecataban, the bradykinin receptor blocker, which they can self-administer <coughs> at home. But if they have an airway swelling, they're told to dial 999 first then self-administer their ecataban. So they may well come to the emergency department having given their first dose of ecataban, which is probably starting to work by the time they come in. We've got the odd patient who self-administers IV, C1 at home as well for peripheral or abdominal swellings, but fewer now. Now we've got a subcut injection there. They're not so keen on doing the IV. The reason they do it at home, as the eyebrows being raised, is it's absolutely awful having to come to the emergency department when you've got abdominal swelling, you're vomiting, you've got diarrhea, you, you feel like you've got an <coughs> acute abdomen, and you're sitting there in the room and you're being triaged at the end of the line because they think you're drunk because you had a beer earlier today, and actually it's, it's a miserable experience. So on the whole, if it's not life-threatening, we're teaching our patients to manage all their attacks at home, 
emphasizing if it's airway, it's non-negotiable. In fact, we say above the shoulders, non-negotiable, 999. And that hopefully reduces their attendance at the emergency department, but means when they go there, they'll get straight through and actually get treated promptly. Oh, this is my rare causes slide. We can go through this really quickly. Some of the funny old eosinophilic disorders due to release of eosinophil mediators can cause angioedema. Urticarial vasculitis is important because when you're looking at urticaria, which so often goes with angioedema, it's important to ensure the urticaria lasts for less than 48 hours. And when it goes, <coughs> the skin is perfect, back to normal, no bruising. And that it's not painful. It's itchy urticaria, not painful. So if it's painful, it's lasting for weeks or days, many days, and when it goes away, it's bruising or scarring, you have to think of an alternative atypical diagnosis, and then you're looking at a biopsy for an urticarial vasculitis process. Other drugs can cause it. Cocaine causes uvular swelling, apparently. So, you know, we need to think a bit outside the box, but, but in, in, in straightforward terms, once we're starting to think about differential of um, angioedema, if we keep radicalin and histamine as our, as our differential, we'll not go far wrong. So very quickly, thinking about those questions, is the presentation typical? If it's not a typical presentation of either the angioedema or the urticaria, you're going to consider a biopsy. First of all, quite right, think of an allergic precipitant, take the history back an hour, maybe four hours if you're being generous. If you think there is a trigger, you're going to either send them up to the allergy clinic where we'll do skin prick testing, or you can do blood tests looking for specific IgE. Acutely, of course, you can measure tryptase, needs to be within four hours of the severe bit of the reaction because tryptase doesn't hang around for very long. If it's not, if there's no allergic type trigger, think about non-allergic triggers. Are there on an ACE inhibitor? Think about the physical things we talked about, exercise, heat, um, light can cause um, trigger off angiodermatous swelling. Exclude an underlying funny thing like C1 inhibitor deficiency. If it's angioedema alone without urticaria, think about measuring C4. And then we're left with this funny old bunch of idiopathic or spontaneous urticarian angioedema. Fairly feeble effort to demonstrate this in a diagrammatic form. The great big purple blob is all the patients we see with idiopathic urticarian angioedema. And we've picked off a few around the edge. I've mentioned hereditary angioedema type 3, which is on the non-urticaria side. We think they're bradykinin-mediated. But most of the non-urticarias who are bradykinin-mediated, who haven't got uh, we've already excluded hereditary angioedema. Most of them will probably be spontaneous, but some may have a family history and then they'd get lumped into the hereditary funny category. Can't really explain it. On the other side, angioedema plus urticaria, some of those will be autoimmune. There may be some of the physical ones I mentioned who haven't got allergic triggers, but actually another large bulk of them in the middle of that purple blob, we haven't got a clear explanation of why they're getting their angioedema, although on the urticaria side, it's probably histamine-mediated, it's probably spontaneous mast cell degranulation. On the angioedema side, it's probably a slight imbalance of that bradykinin pathway causing too much bradykinin being produced. And that can guide our treatment. So, I've got five minutes, haven't I? Let's go back to our cases. The first one, the gentleman who had the background of ischemic heart disease and hypertension, you knew that that was probably his ACE inhibitor causing his angioedema. You're happy with that? I'm not going to ask you about it right. I'm sure you all did. Hopefully, you got the message with him that it was going to be a bradykinin-mediated process. Acutely, in fact, if he's really rubbish and you're looking to ITU and you're looking to intubating him, you could use a bradykinin receptor blocker, couldn't you? It's quite neat. And it is, I think, just licensed any minute just about now, Icataban, in this situation. Word of warning, though, it's £1,300 a shot. 
So I would suggest that we reserve it for the patients who are going to go to intensive care to stop them going because being intubated is a bit rubbish and having to go to ITU is a bit rubbish and quite expensive too. The, um, the manufacturers of the drug would think it would be very fine if we kept all our patients on ACE inhibitors and gave them a saliva catheter to have at home. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but if you've got a hereditary problem, that's different. We're not going to do that for our ACE inhibitor patients. And actually, I would suggest that some, it is a self-limiting condition. You're going to stop the ACE inhibitor. We tend to start antihistamines, which is not logical, because we know it's bradykine-mediated. But we're thinking, what we're doing is we're thinking, maybe it's unmasked a tendency to a spontaneous one. And if it has, let's give some antihistamines. And they're better for you than steroids. So you're happy with that? They'll need to be high doses, though. There's no point giving cetirizine one a day. It won't touch the sides. So hit them quite hard with four times a day cetirizine, 10 milligrams, or four times a day fexofenadine. Stop the ACE inhibitor. Warn the patient they might have a few more attacks before it completely settles down. And job done. If they're totally rubbish and going to ITU, I think it would be right to give a catavant, though. I think the complications associated with going... I'm sure ITU is a lovely place, but we do like to avoid our patients going there if we can. So the complications associated probably work the balance works. Well. I will one day write the um, thing that says how we manage this in this hospital. I haven't done it yet. So case two. 76-year-old woman. This is my lady having anaphylaxis on the North Circular, isn't it? She's got duck egg allergy. She really scared the life out of me because we did skin prick test for hen's egg. It was negative. We did a specific IgE to the hen's egg because that's the only one we've got commercially. It was negative. So all clever clogs here thought, well, I'll do a skin prick test to fresh duck egg. You have never seen someone with a more massive result of a positive whole forearm in a great big positive thing, and then she collapsed and had a systemic reaction. It was all very disgusting. But at least we'd made the diagnosis, huh? Um, anyway, so she has a type 1 IgE-mediated reaction to duck egg. We did subsequently challenge her to cooked eggs, baked, well-cooked eggs, and she's able to tolerate cakes and biscuits and stuff. But I have advised her off, and she didn't want to be challenged to the lightly cooked, um, even lightly cooked hen's eggs, because we frightened her and us. So we know the third lady's got hereditary angioedema. It's important to manage her airway. Luckily, I remember to say that. Treatment, again, is going to be IVC1 inhibitor or subcutaneous acatabant, the bradykinin receptor blocker acutely. Must stop her an estrogen-containing pill because we know estrogens can do nasty things to that bradykinin pathway, <coughs> increasing the production of bradykinin. So that's why she got ill when she got ill because someone started her on the pill. Okay? Case four, you know all these are. Case four, 54-year-old woman, she's having <coughs> episodes coming out of the blue. There's no triggers. She's got urticaria with it, so we're not going to go chasing a C4. That would be a waste of money, because you've got urticaria. You don't get urticaria in hereditary angioedema. So we, we're confident to make a positive diagnosis of spontaneous urticaria in angioedema. We're going to reassure her this is not an allergy. It's not that we haven't found the thing you're allergic to. It's that you're not allergic to anything. Because otherwise she'll go off to Holland and Barrett and have all sorts of wacky tests because the NHS didn't want to test her. So it needs to be a positive diagnosis. It really does. And again, she will respond beautifully to higher doses of non-stating antihistamine. Worst start, obviously, starts with terazine once a day. But if after two days she's still getting her to care in angioedema, go to twice a day, up to three times a day. She can be on four a day within a week. And after a couple of weeks, that will probably do the job. How long does she stay on it for? Until she stops needing it. And usually what happens is people accidentally forget to take a few tablets and they know that the rash is coming back or the swelling is coming back so they know they still need it. And after two or three months they might go away for a weekend and they don't take their antihistamines and they're fine. You don't have to wean antihistamines, there's no palaver about it. Some people find that they just 
stress, stress can trigger off apparently, and they just need to take their antihistamines at particular times. I'm going on holiday, I always get urticaria when I go on holiday, I'm going to take my antihistamines for two weeks while I'm on holiday, high doses, stop the problem happening. Perfectly acceptable behaviour. So that's the spontaneous or idiopathic form of urticaria and angioedema. So just whiz through this again, we're going to look for an allergic precipitant. If it's not allergic, we're going to think about other triggers, non-allergic triggers. Think, is it bradykine mediated? Bear that in mind if there's no urticaria. Exclude the underlying systemic condition. The other thing to put in there is, of course, those of you who do pediatrics know that children get urticarial rashes all the time when they get viruses. They might get a bit of angioedema too, and we don't think too much, so underlying infection is worth excluding. And finally, we left with that diagnosis of idiopathic. Not such a mystery, I hope, now. It's a real diagnosis. It really does respond to antihistamines, and it really isn't allergy. Thanks so much. That's it.